Section 19 of the Byzantine Empire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Botez. The Byzantine Empire, the Rearguard of European Civilization by Edward Ford. Section 19. The Komneni, the last great rally, part 1. Alexius I was now about 33 years of age, a short, somewhat insignificant-looking man, with an inclination to opulence, troubled also with a slight hesitation in his speech. He had already acquired great reputation as a general, especially by his clever defeat of Briennios at Calavria. Otherwise little was known of him. He was destined to do much for the broken empire, and by his curious limitations of character was to leave much undone. The external situation of the empire in 1081 was as bad as it well could be. The whole of the provinces east of the Hellespont were in the hands of the Turks, with the exception of a few isolated fragments. The Balkan provinces were in disorder and more or less disaffected. In Italy, the Normans had completed the conquest of the imperial possessions, and their great chief, Robert Giscard, was preparing to invade the empire. The general situation was not perhaps outwardly worse than it had been in 717, but actually it was much more serious. Leo III had a large and vigorous peasant population with which to work in his task of regeneration. In 1081 the peasantry of Asia had disappeared, and those of Europe were mostly aliens or semi-aliens of recent conquest, entirely devoid of sympathy for the empire which had absorbed them. Leo had had to combat and dominate a powerful bureaucracy, but Alexius was surrounded by an overshadowing territorial aristocracy as well. The army was a mere wreck. Its only really effective corps were the famous foreign or, as it was now styled, Varangian Guard, which, since the Norman conquest of England, had been recruited by a strong draft of sturdy Englishmen and a force of 10,000 immortals, which Alexius had formed a few years before. The navy had been neglected for many years. The imperial fleet was almost non-existent. The provincial squadrons had decayed owing to the disorganization of the Asiatic coast themes by Turkish eruptions. Meanwhile, the trading cities of Italy, whose strength had been steadily increasing during the previous century, had built considerable fleets. Pisa, Genoa, Amalfi, and above all, Venice, possessed large naval resources, and Robert Giscard, assisted by the South Italian ports, was building up a navy. Venice was still nominally part of the empire, 
and came to the support of Alexius. But its allegiance was very precarious, and had to be secured by the donation of commercial privileges which were harmful to the prosperity of the empire. In any case, the imperial position at sea was bad. It depended upon external aid. The thalassocracy of New Rome was at an end. The personality of Alexius counted for much. Professor Oman distinguishes him from Leo III by describing the latter as a hero, while Alexius was only a statesman. Heroism is not incompatible with statesmanship. Leo was even more of a statesman than a warrior. Alexius was not devoid of heroic qualities. On one side of him, he was a good type of the Byzantine warrior, noble, a fine tactician, and a gallant fighter. He was resolute and persevering, and ill-success never daunted him. His fertility of resource was remarkable, and not less so his power of turning an opportunity to good account. But with all this, he was not a statesman of a high order. He was the author of no great scheme or reform. His statesmanship was limited to devising means of coping with each emergency as it arose. His most successful stroke of policy, which had far-reaching and highly successful results, was his appeal for help to the West. But here we shall see that his overcaution prevented him from fully profiting by the successes of the Crusaders. It must be remembered that the times were against him, and that in spite of all he succeeded in preserving the empire, and in strengthening it, so that it endured for another century. But though he did much, he might have done more. For the present he had much ado to maintain himself in Europe. In June 1081, Robert Giscard took Corfu, and landed in Epirus with 30,000 men. He forthwith laid a siege to Durazzo, which was gallantly defended by George Paleologos. Alexius made desperate exertions. He made a truce with Suleiman, Sultan of the Seljuks of Asia Minor, leaving him in possession of nearly the entire peninsula, and obtained a body of horse bowmen for his army. He sent the, according to European notions, enormous sum of 144,000 nomismata to the Western Emperor Henry the Fourth, who was on bad terms with the Normans and their patron, the famous Pope Gregory Seventh. But the subsidy did not infuse much additional vigor into Henry's somewhat futile operations in Italy, which, however, may have contributed to induce Giscard to return to his dominions in 1082. More effective were Alexius's dealings with Venice, whose sympathies were still Roman. Liberal subsidies and permission to trade with his ports, free of custom duties, brought a large Venetian fleet on the scene, 
under the Doge Domenico Silvio, who severely defeated the Norman squadron under Giscard's son, Bohemund. Meanwhile, Giscard was busied with the siege of Durazzo. The defence was in the highest degree gallant. The blockade at sea was necessarily imperfect. By land, Paleologos repelled all Giscard's efforts, destroyed his siege machines and towers, and held his own for month after month until, in October, Alexius at last appeared upon the scene with a large but very unreliable army. Giscard was forced to raise the siege. He had suffered very heavily, but Alexius made the mistake of giving battle with his untrustworthy troops. He had exchanged some of them with Paleologos, who now himself commanded one of the imperial divisions, but he clearly had little control over the motley force. The Varangian guards in the van, under their commander Nampites, charged the Norman line before Alexius could support them, and drove the left wing into the sea. But Giscard was able to concentrate upon and destroy them before help arrived. Alexius, who was hurrying to their assistance, was caught in the melee and had to fight his way out. Thereupon, the rest of the army, with commendable discretion, but very doubtful loyalty and courage, faced about and retreated in haste, though half of it had not come into action. Its loss was not heavy. The 6,000 slain were mainly Varangians, but it was completely routed and scattered. In 1082, Durazzo, after holding out for several months longer, at last surrendered. Giscard was forced to return to Italy to aid Pope Gregory against Henry IV, but Bohemond overran Epirus and took Ioannina. In 1083, he advanced against Alexius, who had rallied fresh forces, routed his new levies easily, first near Ocrida and then at Arta, and captured Castoria. Ocrida, however, repulsed Bohemond, who thereupon turned southward into Thessaly and besieged Larissa, which held out gallantly under Leo Cephalas. Alexius advanced to its relief, and was this time successful. His generalship was good. The Normans were severely defeated. Bohemond retreated to Durazzo and thence to Italy, while Alexius recovered Castoria. In 1085, Alexius and his Venetian allies besieged Corfu, but Giscard completely defeated the Venetian fleet and broke up the siege. It was a stroke of good fortune for the empire that he died soon after. Alexius then besieged and recovered Durazzo and afterwards Corfu. He rewarded Venice by the grant in fief of Dalmatia. His seat upon the throne was very insecure during these years, and there was more than one plot against him, but they were successfully overcome. In 1086, the Seleucs took Antioch. 
which for 15 years had maintained itself, a forlorn outpost of the empire in Syria. North of Antioch they hardly advanced. Cilicia and the Cappadocian Taurus were full of desperate Armenian refugees, who formed a very effective barrier against further progress, and maintained an isolated existence in their fastness, while the rugged Trapezontine province also remained untouched. Elsewhere, Asia Minor was full of semi-independent Seleuk emirs, though about this time they were brought into some kind of temporary subordination by the great Sultan Malek Shah. The Seleuk power in the peninsula was a very fluid and uncertain quantity. The Danish Mand state, which included Sebast, Sivas, Komana, Tokat, Kabira, Niksar, Albarta, and Malatia was practically independent. Scarcely had Alexius freed himself from the Norman war when he was assailed by the Pechenegs and Cumans, who poured into Thrace in 1087. They were defeated by Nicolaus Mavrocatacalon and forced back to the Danube. But in 1088, Alexius, endeavoring to drive them beyond the great frontier stream, was defeated at Silistria. Thereupon their hordes again swarmed into Thrace, and for more than two years Alexius was engaged in an extraordinary partisan campaign near Constantinople. It is certain that he often headed a mere handful of men. More than once he was in imminent danger. Even when successful, he failed to drive the barbarians from the province. But at last he succeeded in sowing dissensions between Pechenegs and Cumans. The latter came over to his side, and thus strengthened, he took the offensive and entirely defeated the Pechenegs on April 29, 1091. The European provinces were now clear of invaders, but they must have suffered greatly. In the same year, Alexius concluded a treaty with Malek Shah in Asia Minor. It is surprising to find that it was to his advantage. He recovered Nicomedia and several maritime towns, and soon afterwards recaptured Sinope by stratagem, thus reopening communication by land with the long-isolated Trapezontine provinces. The Seleuk emirs were prone to action on their own account, however. In 1090, Tsak of Smyrna defeated an imperial squadron at sea. In 1092, he actually proclaimed himself Roman emperor. He was defeated near Ephesus by John Ducas, brother of the empress, but in 1093 was able to besiege Abydos. He was, however, murdered during the siege. The position of Alexius in 1093 was that he was more firmly seated on the throne than in 1081, that he had consolidated his position in Europe and had begun to recover Asia Minor. Malek Shah had died in 1092, and his successor at Nicaea, Dawud Kilij Arslan I, 
had too much trouble with the Danish Mend and Seljuk Emirs to attempt recovery of Nicomedia and Sinope. Alexius was in fresh danger. In the time of his trouble he had sought help from the West. Possibly his appeals and diplomacy would of themselves have effected little, but the dull, brutal cruelty of the Turks had made an immense sensation among Europeans, who had hitherto been able to make pilgrimages to Palestine with little interference from the caliphs. With the question of the motives of the Crusades we have not to deal. The diplomacy of Alexius, religious feelings, the commercial instincts of the Italian cities, all played their part. In 1093, Alexius was appraised that Western Europe was arming and would soon be in his territories. He probably spent that year and the next in reorganizing the defenses of the European provinces. In 1095, bodies of enthusiasts, including comparatively few fighting men, made their way eastward. Their pillaging propensities gave great trouble in Hungary, and yet more in the empire. Some of them, under Walter the Penniless and Peter the Hermit, eventually reached Thrace. They were a mere barbarian horde, half-armed and entirely without discipline. Alexius quietly passed them over to Asia, where they were promptly massacred by the Seleucs, a few only, including the leaders, escaping. Next year, the main mass of the crusading warriors of Europe began to arrive. Their numbers were undoubtedly vast, though there were certainly not as many as 100,000 horsemen, much less 500,000 infantry. There is some reason to think that at the Battle of Antioch in 1098, they put about 50,000 men into the field. This at a time when they had suffered enormously from a year's warfare under a burning sun and the horrors of a long blockade. Possibly they may have mastered 120,000 fighting men at Constantinople. The number of non-combatants was doubtless large. Troubles were endless. The Westerners were mostly barbarians of a type not at all above the Teutonic invaders of the empire in the 5th century. Their leaders were as illiterate and nearly as coarse and brutal as their followers. They had not the remotest conception of civilized peace and order. They were so poor that even had they been willing to buy their own food, they had not the means. The leaders, some of them at least, were anxious to keep the peace. But even the best of them could ill comprehend a state of things in which life was sacred and property secure. Many were too haughtily ignorant to attempt to do so. One of the greatest, Bohemond, was an old foe of the empire. No doubt Alexius found it hard to understand their blind enthusiasm, but his policy towards them could hardly have been avoided. 
his subjects were clearly his first consideration. There was doubtless cheating of the ignorant barbarians by his contractors, but as their supplies were paid for by his subsidies, they had little reason to complain. Business, otherwise swindling, is always the same. Contractors make their market with equal indifference out of Romans, Crusaders, or British armies of the 20th century. Of course, the Crusaders declared that the Greeks betrayed them. It would have been strange had it been otherwise. But division after division reached Constantinople in a state of confusion and indiscipline not worse than that in which they had started from the West. From Nish onwards, they lived on supplies furnished by the emperor. Alexius succeeded in so arranging matters that no two divisions of the great irregular horde were camped before the capital at one time. He also induced all the chiefs, except Raymond of Toulouse, to do him homage. Even Bohemond was persuaded into doing so. A most remarkable proof of the force of the emperor's personality, though, of course, he had a large army in Constantinople, and the Norman chief who had measured swords of him had not the illusions as to his weakness which possessed the stupid, arrogant barons of France and Germany. Alexius also persuaded the crusaders to restore to him all their conquests which were old imperial possessions. On his side, he undertook to supply them, and there is no doubt that many of the chiefs received large sums from him. In June 1097, the united forces of the empire and the crusade besieged and took Nicaea, which surrendered to Alexius rather than to the savage westerners, and caused thereby a tumult among the latter, who were thirsty for pillage. Alexius smoothed matters over by a large donation, and the crusading host moved on. Kilij Arslan, to concentrate a sufficient force against them, had to summon to his help the emirs of Western Asia Minor. A few weeks after Nicaea, the crusaders blundered among the Seleuc horde near Dorileum, and by some accident gained a complete victory. They moved across Asia Minor, now in great part a desert, and losing very heavily, chiefly through ignorant incompetence, reached Antioch and took it late in the year. During the greater part of the march, they had been accompanied and assisted by a division of imperial cavalry under Taticios. In Antioch, the main host was besieged by the whole levy of Mesopotamia and Asia Minor under Kerbuka of Mosul, but in 1098 succeeded in defeating it. The division under Taticios was the only Byzantine force which cooperated with the crusaders. They loudly exclaimed against the emperor's treachery and slackness. Mutual recriminations ended in the chiefs 
sending a plain-spoken message to that effect that, if he joined them with his troops, they would hand over to him all their conquests. Alexius refused to come, and so the Syrian acquisition of the Crusaders became a series of Western feudal states. Alexius, in fact, had been busy in Western Asia Minor. He has been often scornfully compared to the jackal following the lion, but such criticism is barely sensible. He was obviously bound to take full advantage of the withdrawal of the Turks. He marched steadily through Bithynia, Mysia, Lydia, and Caria, recovering them with little fighting, since the Turkish bands remaining were few. In 1099 it was the same. The Crusaders took Jerusalem and next year defeated the Fatimid army at Ascalon while Alexius was busy recovering Phrygian fortresses and reorganizing the long-separated provinces. From the military point of view, he did his work well. He accorded a wise measure of local independence to the frontier cities and organized a system of defense of the Bithynian hill passes by means of military colonies. Economically, he could do little. The Seljuk ravages had exterminated the peasant proprietors. And though Alexius rebuilt and repopulated Tralles, Cone, and other towns, this was done by collecting within them refugees from districts which were left bare from insecurity. In 1103, Bohemond, now Count of Antioch, was taken by the Danishmans. Alexius was already moving to the recovery of Cilicia, having now established himself in the west, and his troops reoccupied Seleucia. Meanwhile, however, the Pisans, who were friendly to Bohemond, had declared war on Alexius, and entered the Aegean with a large fleet. Near Rhodes, they were defeated by the imperial fleet under Taticios and the Italian Landulf, and thereupon made peace. But the indomitable Bohemond had escaped to Europe, and was collecting mercenaries for another invasion like that of 1081. In Cilicia, the imperial army had considerable success, Tarsus, Adana, and Mopsuesia were taken, and the Armenians of Taurus brought under vassalage. Alexius himself was at Thessalonica, preparing for the advent of Bohemond, but nonetheless he had during the following year and afterwards two strong armies in Asia. During these years he was assailed by numerous plots, of which the last was in 1107. They were all put down, and the conspirators punished, but with mildness. Cruelty was not among the vices of Alexius. In 1107, Bohemond crossed the Epirus with more than 200 ships and 45,000 miscellaneous mercenaries, and once more laid siege to Durazzo 
which was defended as stoutly as in 1081. Alexius acted with great skill and caution. He moved to the neighborhood of the place, and after much skillful maneuvering, practically blockaded his antagonist in his camp, when his army slowly dwindled away with famine, disease, and sporadic fighting. After persisting bravely but uselessly for many months, Bohemond at last gave up and sued for peace, promising to become a faithful vassal of the empire. Antioch had been gallantly defended by his nephew, Tancred, but Bohemond had been reduced to helplessness. It was evident that the empire was far stronger than in 1081. Internally, the effect of the victory was that plots against the emperor ceased. He spent the next three years in the labor of reorganization, not unsuccessfully. In 1111, Bohemond ended his restless life. In the same year, Hassan, emir of Cappadocia, made a raid into the imperial territory. The Seljuks were now more or less hemmed in by the imperial advance and by the Danish Med State in the northeast. Their headquarters were at Iconium, 300 miles from their old station at Nicaea, but their nomadic habits left them little alternative to plundering. Hassan was defeated, but four years later the Seljuks made another murderous raid, right up to the Aegean. This called Alexius again into the field, though now 68 years of age and failing in health. He cleared Phrygia of the Turkish raiders and pushed forward as far as the Philomelion, about 70 miles from Iconium. He did not choose, however, to attack the Seljuk headquarters. No doubt, a further advance through the ruined country about Lake Tata was risky. He began to retire, and the Seljuks attacked him. They were completely defeated, and the campaign ended in victory, but left the chance of regaining Central Asia Minor more remote than ever. The country had been so ruined that the march from Philadelphia or Lodicia to Iconium was a task of immense difficulty. The net result of the reign of Alexius was that he had regained, and to some extent reorganized, Western Asia Minor. Alexius died two years later, in 1118, at the age of 70, after a troubled reign of 37 years. His last act was to refuse to disinherit his son John in favor of his eldest child, the famous Anna, and her husband Nicephorus Briennios. Anna was several years older than her brother and had a strong desire for power. Her husband was not in sympathy with her, but her mother used all her influence on her behalf without avail and is said in her disappointment to have taunted the dying emperor with his hypocrisy. The charge was not perhaps without truth, but the incident does the empress no great credit. 
According to his lights, Alexius has done his duty to the empire. He had failed to do much towards economic recovery. Perhaps he could, in any case, have done little. He was hampered with a large circle of family connections, for whom he thought himself obliged to find salaried posts and elaborately coined titles. His subtle diplomacy had not always been successful. His dealings with the Crusaders had done harm as well as good, and had exposed him to not absolutely unfounded charges of treachery. But still he had raised the empire from its degradation and had left it in a better condition than had been the case since the days of Constantine the Tenth. End of section nineteen. Recording by Mike Botes.